So Monday night, I uh, coughed my way through the study. So we are very much hoping. <laughs> you know what? I'll keep it up here. I should have brought one. I didn't think about it. The thing is, is I don't even have a cough, and yet I coughed my entire way through the lecture on Monday night. So I am praying that that is not a repeat today. Okay, let us go ahead and pray, and we will begin. <clears throat> Father, I do thank you so much that you have allowed us to join our hearts together here week after week. What a huge and wonderful, joyous privilege it has been. And I thank you so much for Martha Peace. I thank you for her ministry. I thank you for the book that we have been able to ponder, to consider what the attitudes are that should be in each one of us when our hearts have been transformed by Jesus Christ through salvation. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that we would consider these things, that we would contemplate them as we move into Christmas, and particularly this morning as we look at the topic of love, that we would be considering uh, all the things that you put before us, and even though the world proclaims Christmas as the most wonderful time of the year, it is often, honestly, if we look at it through a truthful lens, it is oftentimes one of the seasons that is most prone to sin, most prone to selfishness, um, and we do not want to reflect those kinds of heart attitudes, Lord. We want to reflect you, your love, and the fact that Christ came is a, is a reflection of your love and his love for us. And we just thank you and praise you for that. I pray that you would help me to communicate these truths clearly this morning and that um, perhaps you would give us new insights as well. In your name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> So I'm going to begin here this morning by reading a blog post. This is not from a Christian. This is from a woman that does not know the Lord. But I thought it would be a good introduction into where we're headed this morning. You'll know right away with the first sentence. My journey of self-love is incomplete. In fact, I'm standing right in the middle of the battle as I've briefly laid down my arms to write this post. I tend to only share about my really dark season after I've come to the other side. This is not one of those stories. This is a story of me in the thick of it, without the answers and without a happy ending or any pretty ribbon to tie it all up in. I guess it's more of a confession than a story with the beginning, middle, and end. So here's my confession. I do not love myself. Ugh, what is so especially hard about writing those words is that I thought I had mastered this. I regained self-worth by climbing a mountain for two weeks after the end of an abusive marriage and a traumatic divorce. I rebuilt my self-love after being hit by a truck when riding my bike and spending a week in a, in a Bali hospital questioning whether I was strong enough to continue. I built a social media brand devoted to instilling in others with the self-confidence the self and self-belief that they were stronger than they imagined and could accomplish greater things than they'd ever dreamt. I overcame so much to get to a place of self-worth and self-love in my 20s, and now here I am again, approaching 30, struggling to be able to look in the mirror and not scream profanities at the person staring back. But if there's anything I hope to accomplish with writing this, it's to remind you and me that self-love is not a, 
a door to pass through, not an obstacle to overcome, not a box to check off, but rather a journey or a cycle containing a whole bunch of different trials that show up in brand new scenarios for as long as the earth continues to spin. And I also hope to remind you that if you're still in the middle of a self-love struggle, I'm right here with you. I don't have it all figured out, and I don't have the answers, and I unfortunately don't have any shiny ribbon in which to wrap up our stories yet. But in my moments of clarity, I do believe with every fiber of my being that we're going to figure this out. We're going to get through this and be okay and be built up stronger than before, ready to take on the next battles that will surely come. So allow me to let you into my ongoing, unfinished, unsterilized process of facing the reality that I, Alexandra, do not love myself. My divorce and trekking journey taught me that I was capable of accomplishing great things on my own, and my bike accident taught me to start living according to my own terms and invest in personal growth. But what I had not yet learned was how to love myself when all that strength, all those accomplishments, all that personal development just fell apart. So she goes on then to explain various ways that you, that she has wrestled and invites you into her struggle. And then, of course, with a lot of blogs, you have comments at the end. And this was the comment that was directly under her post, and I thought I would share it with you says this, nailed it. We need to value ourselves, know our worth, and love ourselves so that people around us will treat and respect us the way we want to. A positive mind and heart full of love will attract positive people into our lives. Now, if you have been at Grace Community Church for any more than a month, you know this is not where we stand or what we embrace. But actually, as I read this woman's testimony, I truly grieved over her desperate search to find purpose and meaning in life. That poor, broken girl, the only place she has to turn is to self because she does not know God. She has clearly struggled through some very difficult experiences, and she wants to overcome them. She wants to be happy. She craves it to be fulfilled in life, to have purpose. But sadly, she has been fed a lie. She has believed and embraced the philosophy that the only way to function in life, the only way to deal with difficulties is to start with yourself and really specifically loving yourself. And then you move out from there. But the point, the starting point is with self She is not alone in her assumption. In fact, this is the message our culture promotes loudly and often. So then, what is self-love? And I'm not giving you any major technical uh, definition here. Google is what gave me the definition, a quick type. (laughs) Okay, so here we go. I think we pretty much know what self-love is, but we just have to at least define it. So self-love, it is regard, so this is Google's definition, okay? Regard for one's own well-being and happiness. Yeah, well, that pretty much sums it up. But then there's this little phrase in parentheses, and it says this, chiefly considered as a desirable rather than narcissistic characteristic. Okay, so as I pondered this, I thought it entirely depends on your perspective, Because when I have self-love, that is a desirable 
thing for me to have, a desire attribute, if you want to call it, for me to have of myself, self-love of myself. However, when you look at me and I have self-love, what is your perspective of me? Narcissistic. So it's all about perspective. Of course it is, because the world has no no true basis for what is right, for what is truth. And so then consequently, it's just a free-for-all. So what is self-love? It is the love of self, the desire to protect self, to sustain self, to defend self, to promote self, and to extend comfort to self, to make oneself happy and fulfilled. We could go on and on and on, but we won't. From a biblical perspective, we know there is no such thing as self-love. In fact, the term could be considered really an oxymoron from a biblical standpoint. The two words should never be put together. Biblical love denies and sacrifices self. It does not promote self. The person who actually loves themselves would be defined as what? A selfish person. That's what we would say. You're a selfish person. However, self-love is the same as selfishness. It's all a matter on how we spin the phrase, the term, the words, right? Obviously, this is not new to us as we sit here this morning. This idea of self-love, we mentioned it. We mention it often and talk about how it's very harmful and it's very sinful. We hear a plethora of these messages all the time because we are naturally selfish apart from the work of Christ in our lives. We are prone in our flesh to be drawn to those messages. Thus, we find traces of these ideas even among believers in the church. But the truth is, if we harbor love for ourselves, we will fail to practice the love that we read about in Martha's Peace book this morning. So if you read the chapter, you know it's on love. And she talks about what love is, what we should be putting on. And really what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to kind of help you see the other side of that. She really talks about the put on. I'm going to talk a little bit more about, I guess you could look at it maybe from the put off or maybe really why we struggle to put on love. That's really kind of more the perspective that I'm taking this morning. So we're going to begin by considering a few things about selfishness as we get going. So capital A on your outline, the origins of self-worship. And this is not new. I know you guys already know this, but in order to contrast it, we have to have the biblical perspective. So that's what I'm going to give you just very quickly here. So the origins of self-worship, small a, is Satan. That's really where it began. And you remember from Isaiah 14, I'm going to read verses 12 through 15. And this is about his fall and really what he said of himself. And just listen to him as he describes what he's going to do. I mean, this is the ultimate in self-love here. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. So speaking to Satan here. But you said in your heart. So these are the words that Satan said. I will ascend to the heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. And I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. 
Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. So ultimately, because Satan's self-love, of course, rooted in pride, the ultimate is that he will be thrown into the lake of hell or lake of fire one day. So it didn't just, of course, stay with Satan, as we know, move straight on to Adam and Eve right there in the very beginning in the garden. So Genesis 3, 6 says this, when the woman, you remember that the serpent came to her, Satan in the form of a serpent. And so verse 6 says, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate and she gave also to her husband with her and he ate as well. So at that point, then what happened? Then basically this love of self just went to everybody, every human that was ever born. And it's really, as we'll see, it's really rooted in pride. And then Isaiah describes it like this. So see on your outline is self. Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And Okay, so why is that a problem that we have turned to our own way? Because what are we supposed to be doing? We are supposed to be living for the glory of God rather than pursuing our own individual purpose. That's exactly what Satan did is he pursued his own individual purpose. And then Adam and Eve, what did they do? Instead of being obedient to God, they pursued their own independent way, which led into all sorts of sin. And then, of course, that then was passed to us. And what do we so naturally do? We pursue our own way. And what is our own way? Self-love. And choosing to turn to our own way, we have exchanged the worship of God for the worship of self. Or we might say the love of self or self-love. Ultimately, we have exchanged God to get self. <clears throat> so, Capital B on your outline is the great exchange, self for God. So Romans one twenty five says, for they exchanged the truth. This is describing, of course, remember the unbelieving heart here. It says, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And this is the heart of every person that is ever born until they are redeemed by faith in Jesus Christ. They have served the cre creature rather than the creator. And ultimately, that's what self-love self is. It is loving self, worshiping self, as opposed to worshiping and loving God. Instead of worshiping God, their creator, they opted to worship themselves, the creation. Man became his own God, and he lived to serve and please himself. The Apostle Paul tells us that everything has been created for God. And yet, the creature, us, the created, worships 
ourselves as opposed to God. And yet everything that was created was created for God to give God glory. And that is the beauty of when we become believers and we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit as we can actually live out the purpose for which we were created. But anybody who does not have the power of the Holy Spirit, the unbeliever, of course, can never do that. So Paul wrote in Romans 11.36, For from him, meaning God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. The person who loves self has supplanted God with themselves and determines that everything should be for themselves, through themselves, and to themselves. Rather than worshiping God in humble submission and grateful adoration as the worthy king, God is expected to bow down and to serve us. We don't really like to think about that. That's a pretty shocking way to state it. God should serve me and bow down to me. But ultimately, that is what self-love desires. Everything in my life including God, should be serving me and giving me what I desire. Often our prayers reflect this as we come to God demanding that he should give us what we want. Have you ever reflected on your prayers and just thought about what your prayers sound like? Self-love prayers are the ones that come to God demanding, expecting that he should give us what we want. Or perhaps it's when we get angry, when God takes something from us that we really want, or he doesn't give us something that we really want. It's in those times that we recognize the self-love, or we should recognize the self-love that indwells our own hearts. This, of course, we know is the epitome of pride. It all results and stems from pride. And so I thought I would share with you Stuart Scott's definition of pride. He says this, when someone is proud, he or she is focused on, guess what? Self, exactly. This is a form of self-worship. Prideful people believe that they are or should be the source of what is good, right, and worthy of praise. They also believe that they themselves are or should be, the accomplisher of anything that is worthwhile to accomplish, and that they should certainly be the benefactor of all things. In essence, they are believing that all things should be from them, through them, and to them, and for them. Pride is competitive toward others, and especially toward God. Pride wants to be on top. And then at the end, he quotes Thomas Watson. He says, Thomas Watson is quoted to have said, Pride seeks to ungod God. Is that not true? Because pride in our hearts wants to exalt ourselves as our own God. We expect then that God should be the creature serving us as opposed to us being the creature creature serving the creator. So small a on your outline, humanity exchanged God's will for self's will. Like Satan who made his five I will statements, man turned from 
God to pursue his own way. Rather than submitting to God's will by worshiping him, worshiping God, they chose to pursue their own will and worship their own created idols. And Isaiah really describes this very well in Isaiah 46, 5 through 7. He says this, to whom would you liken me and make me equal? So this is, of course, God speaking, in case you didn't catch that. So he says, to whom would you liken me and make me equal and compare me that I would be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh silver on the scale hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. They bow down. Indeed, they worship it. They lift it up on the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It does not move from its place. Though one may cry to it, it cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. So essentially... Humanity has exchanged God's will, the creator's will, to pursue their own and then raises up idols to worship. How absolutely absurd. And we don't have idols in that same sense. So it's a little harder for us to recognize the idols that we ultimately worship because we don't have little golden idols sitting on our mantle in our homes. But those idols are still in our hearts. And we raise them up against God. So then B, humanity became haters of God. And we know this from Romans 1, 28 through 30. Speaking again, again of the unbeliever. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do the things which are not proper being filled with all unrighteousness, and then it has a list of things, but I'm just going for one phrase here. They are haters of God. Ultimately, that is the heart of the unbeliever. To have self-love ultimately is to hate God. And I think we need to really consider that. And of course, that is not, if we truly know the Lord, that is not our memo. We love God. We strive to serve him. We strive to please him with our lives. But it's good for us to be reminded that we don't want any remnants of self-love at all raising its ugly head in our lives. We want all of our life to be that which says, not my will, but your will be done. Let me serve you. Let me not love myself, but instead let me be poured out, pour out myself for the glory of God. And when we pour out ourselves for the glory of God, what does that look like? It means that we pour ourselves out in sacrificial care, service, concern, ministry to other people. That's how we demonstrate that we love God and in obedience to his word as he commands us to pour ourselves out for other people. And then see, humanity becomes lovers of self. So from 2 Timothy 3, we have that description of the last days. And I'm going to read this whole thing to you because I want you to pay attention specifically. If you have your Bible and you want to turn, it might be helpful because I want you to see the first phrase and the last phrase that kind of bookend everything. And then I'm going to explain it. So reading from 2 Timothy 3 verses 1 through 4, it says this, but realize this, 
that in the last days difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self. I just, oh, yes, so I have to interrupt myself. I always do this, don't I? Let's get going into the scripture, and then I interrupt it. I was just listening to a sermon by John MacArthur yesterday, and he was talking about how we see this in the last days. Now, of course, last days is talking about all the time since Christ, but that's what we're seeing is this progression of self-love. And we go from bad to worse. And that's exactly what we're seeing in our world today. So he says, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. So now I'm going to kind of explain those bookend things there. So notice the first characteristic that is listed. It says that they will be what? Lovers of self. Then notice the last characteristic in this long list says that they will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Being a lover of self means that they are fond of themselves or too intent on one's own interest. Now that is actually a biblical definition of love of self, okay? So that comes from Thayer's Dictionary. Now listen to how the expositor's commentary describes being a lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God. So here's a quote from the commentary. It is a play on words. Both words are found only here in the New Testament, the, the bookends, okay? They describe those who put self in the place of God as the center of their affections, so it's a play on words because in the Greek, the word for lovers of self and the word for lovers of pleasure sound and look very similar. So to us, we don't quite get that. But in the Greek, they would have seen that a little more clearly. So essentially, we have bookends to our list of sinful characteristics that both describe the real issue at hand. People love themselves more than they love God. And one other thing to notice is that these characteristics are describing people who are religious. They hold, scripture tells us, to a form of godliness and yet they deny its power. And what do we see so much in our evangelical world today? People holding to a form of godliness, claiming Christianity and living entirely for self. You have Christians promoting this idea of self-love. It cannot even go together in any way at all because they are the antithesis of one another. The oxymoron, love and self, they can't go together. So with these things in mind, I'd like to very briefly give you a history lesson. We know that people are lovers of self in our society. The world promotes this philosophy all the time. We are constantly fighting, as we see all the time, this, this entitlement mentality. And we talk about it, we mention it, and then we live it. Shame on us. But it's so much a part of our culture. It's so much a part that we're like the frog in, in the water that gets warm and they don't even notice it. We don't notice how often we act in ways that are entitled because it's just so much a part of who we are in this culture. 
This isn't a big revelation, but it may be helpful to see where some of this thinking has penetrated the church in more recent times. It is one thing to acknowledge that unbelievers are lovers of self. We expect that. But when being lovers of self enters the church, we have a very big problem. So I would like to show you how many how many people in the American church have embraced this teaching through humanistic psychology and by renaming biblical terms. You do understand that this is what psychology does, is it takes biblical terms for sin, and of course, probably many people, it ha- and it's happened in years gone by, many psychologists now don't even understand that this is what has happened, but biblical words for sin have been changed so that It's difficult when we look at certain things, we can't find it in the Bible. And all of a sudden we're looking at it going, wait a minute, but the Bible doesn't speak to being passive aggressive. Oh yeah, you're right, it doesn't. Because passive aggressive is just selfishness trying to get your own way. But we have renamed these terms, and so now there's massive confusion. We need to go to the Bible and define how we're feeling, what we're thinking according to the terms in Scripture. And then all of a sudden, it's like this epiphany. The light comes on. We're like, oh, that's my problem. I don't have self-love. I am a lover of self. I am the epitome of selfish, and I need to repent. So we recognize that selfishness is a negative term, of course, right? None of us want to be labeled as selfish. Perhaps we aren't quite so sure about the term self-love because that has now been spun in a positive light in our culture, right? So that might kind of give us a little pause there. But as we compare it to scripture, we know, of course, that it's sinful, From a Christian standpoint, it is a bit difficult to promote the idea of loving ourselves. So when we truly evaluate this idea of self-love, from a biblical standpoint, we realize, wait a second, we cannot love self if we are also lovers of God. So there is, however, another term that has been used for decades. It has slipped in under the radar and continues to be promoted as a necessity for succeeding in life. You hear it oftentimes when we speak of children who are struggling. It could be used interchangeably with the term self-love, or might I even say selfishness. I am return, excuse me, I'm referring to the term self-esteem. And that is a buzzword that we still hear all over the place. You need to have good self-esteem. This is a psychology term that was introduced several decades ago and has been embraced within the Christian community. So you have, I decided to give you um, just the little pictures there of Abraham Maslow. And what I want to do is just kind of work through this. I'm just going to read what is on this and then explain what he's got here with his little hierarchy of needs. So Abraham Maslow was a psychologist from the years, well, a psychologist. He was born in 1908 and died in 1970. He was actually an atheist. So he did not fear God. He was a lover of self and not a lover of God. He believed as well 
that man is, or he's dead now, but he believed that man was mostly good. So that is what underlied most of what he taught and even his basis for what he created here. He recognized, and actually his recognition was pretty accurate. He recognized that people with emotional pain struggle to function well in life. Would we all agree with that? Yeah, we would. That's true. So what he did is instead of turning to the word of God when people struggle, he created something called the hierarchy of needs. He believed people must have, a cert, have certain needs met in order to be what he called self-actualized. His theory promoted the idea of self-esteem. Basically, he thought that if you have your needs met, you will value or love yourself. And then from there, you will be able to love others. Okay, so if we just stop and listen to that and leave biblical... Um, biblical theology and doctrine out, you can see where people could make sense of this. Well, yeah, if you're broken and hurting, how in the world can you love and serve and care for somebody else? Yes, you need to get yourself in a good place before you can pour yourself out for somebody else. It sounds good, but it is from the pit of hell. It is not truth. It is a lie. And yet it has made its way into the church. And we don't even oftentimes recognize it. The goal is to be self-actualized, confident in himself, feeling good about himself, able then at that point to help others. So if you look at that little triangle, it starts at the bottom and he basically builds this little triangle. So first you focus on the bottom needs. So you have psychological needs, which would be food, water, warmth, and rest. And then you move up to another need, which would be need for safety, which would be security and safety and things like that. Um, hmm. Maybe we should consider somebody like Adoniram Judson that went to Burma. You know what? He suffered all kinds of things. What about the Apostle Paul? Did he go hunting for safety? Again, you can see when we take it apart, all the lies that are there. But until we compare it to scripture, we could easily believe this. So then it moves up the, the ladder there. We need to have a belongingness and love needs met. So that would be with intimate relationships and friends. We have esteem needs. So prestige and feeling of accomplishment. And you can see how it all moves to this top little triangle, which is self-actualization or on the side, you can see there, it says self-fulfillment needs. Achieving one's full potential, including creative activities. What did we see from the gal that I read in the introduction this morning? Is that not everything that she was describing? Not in these terms, but that's where it was coming from. We have to recognize not only that that's wrong, but our hearts should be grieved that people live like that. And it should spur us then that we would want to share the gospel and that we would live according to scripture. So then your other paper there, and I'll just go over this really, really quickly. So he did promote this idea. Maslow promoted the idea of self-esteem. So self-esteem is another way of describing self-love, like I already said. 
Christian psychologist James Dobson integrated this theory into his Christian counseling. He wrote in his book, Hide or Seek, and this is a quote from the book, in a real sense, the health of an entire society depends on the ease with which the individual members gain personal acceptance. Thus, whenever the keys to self-esteem are seemingly out of reach for a large percentage of people, then widespread mental illness, neuroticism, hatred, alcoholism, drug abuse, violence, and social disorder will certainly occur. This is a man that is a Christian or claims to be a Christian. And he gave his life to trying to help the family and yet look at the perspective that he's coming from. He's coming from a humanistic standpoint of self-love and how many people, how many Christians swallowed this hook, line, and sinker. And then when they see things like alcoholism, what were the other things? Hatred, drug abuse, violence. They're like, oh, it's because their self-esteem is low. No, it's because their self-esteem is too high. They love themselves. They do not love God. They are a lover of self. They are not a lover of God. This is the problem. Richard Gantz, if you do not know who this man is, I just love this man. So he's probably in his mid-70s by now or something. And he wrote this book called Psychobabble, right? Is that what it's called? Fabulous book. And he talks about his testimony and how the Lord worked in his life and brought him out of a practice of psychiatry and saved him and then taught him truth. So this comes as a quote from him. He says, when Christian counselors try to integrate biblical principles with modern psychology, they run into trouble. Many end up redefining biblical terms to bring them into harmony with psychology. So what has happened, like in the case of James Dobson, he has taken some some humanistic things and then slapped verses onto it to make it Christian. But you can never do that. You have got to start with the word of God. So some examples, like I mentioned earlier, renaming sin by calling it difficulties or problems. No, it's not a difficulty. And yes, it can be a problem and it can be difficult. But the root of it is that it is sin. Another example would be renaming lovers of self and calling it self-esteem. This is not true biblical love. Maslow's theory entered the church through the door of Christian psychology. Various psychologists who wanted to help others through difficult life situations were trained in humanistic psychology. However, because they were Christians, they also wanted to encourage people through scripture. The result was integrationism. To integrate means to combine or to bring together, to make whole. Basically, Christian psychologists tried to combine humanistic secularism with scripture. They took what are entirely opposite and they tried to bring them together. And it has never, ever, ever worked. And if you have wrestled with difficulties in your life and you've gone to a Christian psychologist or you have gone even to a Christian counselor, there's a difference between Christian counselor and biblical counselor. Christian counselor is an integrationist. They bring secular ideas, the psychology, and they mix it with scripture and call it Christian counseling. 
It is not. You need a biblical counselor that tosses out all psychology and says, let's go to the word of God and let's see what scripture says. And only from that perspective can we truly understand who we truly are and what our issues actually are. Essentially, many in the American evangelical church have promoted love of self without meaning to, often even thinking they are helping people. But this teaching is completely opposed to scripture. We cannot take the conclusions of godless men and expect that they will honor and glorify God according to his word. Sadly, many within the evangelical church have unwittingly promoted the love of self. And Jesus taught instead, Mark 9.35, he said this, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. And then he said in John 12.24-26, through 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. When we love our lives in this temporal world, promoting self, we cannot be a lover of God. It means we must ultimately, hating ourselves sound very strong, but you understand what I'm saying. We need to be willing to sacrifice of ourselves for the sake of God and his purposes and then keep it to eternal life. When we fail to understand Jesus' teaching and instead embrace the world's philosophy to love self, it leads to an inordinate love of our own lives. So see on your outline, capital C, inordinate love of self leads to an inordinate love of physical life. So from the book um, Triumphing Over Sinful Fear, these are two quotes quotes from John Flavel. He says, life is the natural man, so the unbelieving person's greatest and closest interest in this world. So did you catch that? Life, who we are, our person. Life is the unbelieving person's greatest and closest interest in this world. All other interests are wrapped up in it. Liberty, estates, and other accommodations in this world receive their value and estimation from life. If life is cut off, these things perish and are of no account. So when we love self, everything else in life is all geared toward this love of self. So then he says this as well. Since life is the natural man's dearest interest, richest treasure and most beloved thing on earth, whatever endangers life must be the greatest evil. So for the unbeliever who does not have hope in Christ, self is their greatest love. So anything that threatens self then is the greatest enemy is essentially what he's saying. So last, last phrase of, of the quote, on this account, death becomes terrible to people. As believers, death is nothing to fear because life on the other side is our greatest joy. How wonderful. But for the unbeliever, 
Life here is as good as it's ever going to get. And they look to protect it and promote it and save it in whatever way they can. And we think of it on big terms, but it comes down to the nitty gritty. I want to eat what I want to eat. I want to go where I want to go. I want you to give me what I want to have. I want my free will. I want to be able to do everything. I am the God on the throne of my own life. And here's the thing. As believers, we know that's not true. And we despise that we ever are like that. And yet, how often do we crawl back onto that throne in little things, even in big things? And then we have to repent and get off that throne and bow down before our God and Father and Savior and say, please forgive me because I am striving in my sinfulness to make you serve me. And that's blasphemy because you are the greatest God, the creator of the universe. And it is my supreme duty to worship and serve and love you for your glory. When self reigns on the throne of our lives, we seek to do all we can to preserve and protect it. We hate anything that would hinder the preservation of our life or threaten its security. Thus, we fear anything we cannot control. Oh, dear. How many of you say, I'm a control freak? You probably don't ever want to say that again. (laughs) No. If that thought comes to your mind, you immediately repent. We do not want to be a control freak. We do not want to control. We want God to control and we submit. Lou Priola wrote this. Have you ever examined the correlation between selfishness and sinful fear? People who are selfish tend to be fearful. People who are fearful are necessarily selfish. Let's try to think biblically about this matter. What is the biblical antithesis of fear? According to scripture, the opposite of and remedy to sinful fear is love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, according to 1 John 4.18. But love is also antithetical to, as well as the antidote for, the sin of selfishness. And we know this because in 1 Corinthians 13.5, it says, love does not seek its own. Ultimately, when we love ourselves, we fear anything that threatens self. So do you also say, I am an anxious person? Okay, now you know. Instead of saying that, you start repenting of that. Because it is ultimately a love of self rather than a love of God. We do not want to be an anxious or controlling person. Because that is not demonstrating the love of Christ that should rule and reign in our hearts. We fear death. We fear disease. Remember, because we're trying to promote and salvage and save self. So we fear death. We fear disease. We fear poverty. We fear discomfort. We fear humiliation. We fear rejection. We fear and hate others who threaten our will or our desires. Thus, when we are threatened by something out of our control, we fear it, dislike it, and even hate it and all it entails. If you spend any time watching the news or social media, people are harsh and unkind in promoting their own agenda. They attack others who view things differently. They grumble and complain and and dispute with others. 
we bring this attitude, this desire to control, and the fear, fear that accompanies our lack of control into our homes, into our families, into our marriages, we become angry, sinfully frustrated, jealous, anxious, etc., when others threaten our safety, our comfort, and even our preferences. This is this attitude reflects an inordinate love of self. So A on your outline is do not inordinately love life. Luke 14, 26 says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Because we are disciples of Christ, we must view it in its proper perspective. We are not given life to use it for our own purposes. We were given life to glorify God. We are going to die. All of us are going to die at some point. There's absolutely no way we can get around it. Our days are numbered and only God knows the length of our lives. We will not die one moment before he has ordained for us, nor will we live one moment longer. Therefore, loving life and seeking to escape or attack anything that would threaten it is absolutely ungodly and selfish to the core. Instead, we must be willing to lose our lives for the sake of Christ at whatever it costs us. Matthew 16, 24 through 26 says this, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And in light of that, we do not need to fear death and anything lesser than death. We also do not need to fear because ultimately fear is rooted in selfishness and being a lover of self. So B, small b on your outline, do not fear that which threatens life. The apostle Paul left us an incredible example to follow. You remember his life and that long list in 2 Corinthians of all the things that he faced, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the stonings, the whippings, the dangers, all those things that he faced. He left us an example because what did he say? Follow me as I follow Christ. So we should follow his example. And he wrote this in Acts 20, 24. This is one of those verses that kind of goes on my, I don't know, I have a lot of top verses, but this is one that goes in that top category of verses. Fabulous verse. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. Powerful phrase. Do you consider your life as dear to yourself in any capacity, even in the little things? Do you count your life as dear to yourself? Because if you will, you will struggle to love well. He goes on. So first phrase of the verse. So con 
continuing in the verse. He says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He did not count his life as dear to himself. Why? So that he could finish the course and the ministry that God gave him. If we count our lives as dear to ourselves, guess what we will not be doing? We will not finish our course well, and we will not live out the ministry well that God has given us to do. We have entirely got to eliminate self. If I do not dethrone self and exchange the worship and preservation of self for the worship and will of God, I will not respond rightly to all that is going on in the, wor- in the world. Lupriolo again, he says this, we are so selfish, that is our love of self is so strong that a love much stronger than our own is required to overpower it. To the degree and only to that degree that we truly comprehend Christ's love for us and make it our goal to show his love to others, we will conquer our selfishness. It is the love of Christ that controls us. Is that not beautiful? I I do not want to be a control freak. I do not want to control anything. It needs to be the love of Christ that controls me. Only as I deny self can I love others and put their needs above my own needs. Only as I surrender to God's will can I truly lay aside my love for my life. And truly, this is so. If we want to abandon self-centered living, the only way we can do that is to be controlled by Christ's love for us. So D on your outline is Paul was motivated by Christ's love for him. So in 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn there, I really want you guys to keep this in your mind and to remember this because this essentially is kind of the head of where we're coming to with what we're talking about today. This is absolutely essential for you to walk away with today. So if you forget everything else that I say, remember this verse. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. We have to understand the love of Christ so that it can control us. Notice Paul says that it is Christ's love for him that controls him. He is not motivated by his love for Christ. So it's a little bit opposite of what we think. We oftentimes think, well, I'm motivated to love others because I love God. Well, according to the passage here, I'm motivated to love others because I understand the love of Christ. And it is that then that controls me. Although he does love Christ, his love for Christ is secondary. His motivation for service to Christ revolves around Christ's love for him. Everything he does in serving, teaching, correcting, loving, and laboring for the Corinthians is inspired and driven by Paul's understanding of Christ's love for him. Paul knew that the only reason he could love and serve the Corinthians was because he was first loved by God. And 1 John 4:19 of course tells us that. It says we love because he first loved us. Apart from God, we cannot love. 
We don't have the capacity even to do so. We love only because God first loved us and then empowered us to love others. But in order to truly set aside self and love and serve others, we must grow in our understanding of God's love for us. Because Paul grasped God's love for him, it controlled him. It urged and impelled. That's, that's Thayer's dictionary definition to that idea of control. It urged and impelled him to minister to others. 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Christ's love for us was displayed in the gospel when he laid down his life for us. If we are going to grow in our understanding of God's love for us, we need to continue to grow in our understanding of the gospel. When you are wrestling to love, you do not need to focus on yourself. Go back to the gospel. Remind yourself of who your God is. That means we need to grow in our understanding of our own vileness, our own wicked sinfulness. We need to grow in our understanding of God's holiness and why it was so significant for him to send his son. That is what we think about and that's what motivates us to love. Just as Lou Priola wrote, as I read a minute ago, we are so selfish that a love much stronger than our own is required to overpower it. We might love self and apart from God's love overshadowing and overpowering that, we will never break free from our love of self. As we grow in our understanding of God's love for us, we will be motivated to set self aside. Instead of seeking to serve and satisfy self, we will seek to please God and serve him because his love for us will impel us. It will drive us. It will motivate us into service for him at whatever the cost to self. So I wanted to, um, as I get ready to wrap up here, I wanted to read you just a very small testimony of an example of this. If you guys are familiar with Henry Martin, he was a missionary uh, to India in the early 1800s. So it says this, though several attractive, lucrative vocations were open to him, to Henry Martin, he said, here I am, Lord, send me to the ends of the earth. Send me even to death itself, if it be in thy service and in thy kingdom. When he fell deeply in love with a girl named Lydia, he told her of his call from God to live and minister in India. Was this agreeable to her? He asked and pleaded that it might be but it was not. If he would stay in England, he could have her for his bride. If he went to India, he must do without her. The question came like a drumbeat in his brain. India or Lydia? Lydia or India? Henry Martin was a mastered man, constrained, controlled by the love of Christ. The mastery was his, excuse me, the mastery was his in a crisis involving a crucial choice. My dear Lydia and my duty call me in different ways, yet God has not forsaken me. I am born for God only, and Christ is nearer to me than father or mother or sister. So he went to India, and you may be familiar with this phrase that is attributed to him. 
So he went to India to burn out for God. And that is precisely what he did. We are controlled, compelled, constrained by the love of God. The natural result is that we will no longer live for ourselves when we are constrained and controlled by the love of Christ. Warren Wearsby explained, we died, excuse me, he died that we might live through him. This is our experience of salvation, eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. But he also died that we might live for him and not live unto ourselves. This is our experience of service. It has well been said, Christ died our death for us that we might live his life for him. If a lost sinner has been to the cross and been saved, how can he spend the rest of his life in selfishness? So as we strive to put on love and to put aside selfishness and all the result that results from it, we must continue to grow in our comprehension of Christ's love for us. His love is what must compel us, drive us, and motivate us to respond with selfish, selflessness. Only as we comprehend his love will we have confidence in God that will surpass the concerns, difficulties, and fears of the trials that we face. If our understanding of God's love is minimal, it will not be the driving force of our lives. And if it does not drive us, then self most assuredly will. If you are struggling to love others well, Look not to yourself. The problem is not that you don't love yourself enough. The problem is that you do not grasp the love of Christ to the degree that you need to. Instead of looking to yourself, look to the love of Jesus Christ. Recognize that the underlying issue is that you lack an understanding of Christ's love and turn your heart back to the gospel Seek to grow in your understanding of his amazing, abundant, unrestrained love. Christ's love will propel you to forsake your love of self and pour your love for him out in abundant, unrestrained love for others. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you so much for the beauty and wonder of your word. Lord, I ask that you would help us to be constrained, to be controlled by the love of Christ. I ask that you would give us greater understanding to your love poured out through Jesus Christ that we might have eternal life. Lord, I ask that you would help us to be less and less lovers of self and that we would be like Christ, willing to pour ourselves out for the sake of others. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.